0: So this job, you know, HVAC, you know, if you, probably if you're in the front row, you can kind of see my hands are all like scabbed up because I just got like scars all over them, you know. And the other day, I almost died. Doing my job. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So what what was happening is that in HVAC, we have this technique called brazing. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but brazing is this technique where you have to take two pieces of metal, and you basically mold them to become one. It's really cool. And so what happens is to do that, you take two pieces of copper pipe, and you put them together, and you apply an extreme amount of heat towards the pipe, and by doing that, the pipe melts. And when it cools down, the copper becomes one pipe. And the reason why you need that is because when you're having Freon going all throughout your house to make your house cold, when the Freon goes through your air conditioning unit and you have your hot in your house, passing through that cold freon your freon then becomes hot and has all that air inside your hot house right and so then it goes outside of the house into your big fan that's outside of your house you know making all that noise and then it takes all the heat that's inside your house and it ejects it outside of your house right and so but you need to have a, cons- a continuous loop of a copper pipe to hold all that freon in to come in get freezing cold and to leave and to get really hot and so, to do that, you need to braze two pieces of pipe together. And so, the way we do that is we have a flamethrower, a huge tank about this big, connected to a hose with a little sparker trigger on it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Where you kind of press a trigger. It's kind of like something like you use with, for your candles. You know, you kind of press the black and the trigger, and a little flame pops out, and you light your candle. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but we have that like three times bigger, you know? And so, what happens is you turn your valve on and you Hold your trigger and you pull the second trigger and then a spark hits the acetylene, which is the gas, and it causes a huge flame that's really hot, burns really fast, and it causes these two pieces of copper to melt together and to become one pipe, right? Well, so what happens was that on this huge tank that I had, there was two exit points for gas because what happens is that if you were just to open your tank and gas was to fill your hose, think about it. The hose would explode because there's no point of air. To, to exit, right? Until you open up your hose So what happens is that there's like an emergency exit point Where once the, once the hose feels the pressure A little bit of acetylene gets left off, right? And so I didn't know that And so as I'm getting ready to braze What happened was that I t- opened my tank I had my spark right here next to the little exit point And I got my spark and I was ready to ignite it And as I ignited it, I didn't ignite my hose I ignited the entire tank And there was this huge gust of flame Just pumping out of this tank So I'm thinking of one of two things Either A, I'm going to die today Or B, I'm going to close this tank and save the day So I thought the second option kind of sounds a little bit better. So I try to close it by actually opening it even bigger. And then all this flame charge is like puffing out. And I'm like in this super expensive like apartment complex in Northfield. And I'm like, oh my gosh, everything's on fire. And then so I had to so close it. Everything was fine. My supervisor came over and was like, what's taking so long? And I was like, I, I don't know. So kind of kept on doing my job, you know. But <laughs> it's, and that's HVAC. You know, that's what I do for a living, you know. And, and, but I love it, you know. And I almost, I almost got really hurt. Because I was not aware of how the whole torch worked, you know, I kind of was comfortable to this idea that every time I would turn it on and I would turn my sparker on over here, a flame would pop out. But I wasn't thinking of all the science that was going on between it to relieve the pressure and to keep the pressure continuous and to make sure that there's enough pressure to have enough of a spark to cause a flame to the point where you can get it hot enough and I can just continue blabbering all this nonsense. And really, you're just here to learn about Jesus, you know. And so I almost got hurt. Because I didn't know how this was working, right? And so, as I was doing this study, I was thinking about it, and I was like, man, like, how much more dangerous is it to live our entire life not knowing a single thing about God, right? I mean, think about it, I mean, like most of us, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not ignorant, I don't want to kind of teach tonight and think that, you know, most of you guys don't know God, because we've all been coming for the same time, we all know that everyone here is saved, you know, and everyone knows God, everyone has a personal relationship with Him, but knowledge of God is not just something where you can kind of come to church, and you can read your Bible, and you can say, I know that God is Jesus, but it's something that is so much more intimate. And to kind of describe that I want to ask a question how many of us here have a personal relationship with Donald Trump not a single person right <laughs> okay <laughs> but how many but how many people here know who he is every single one of us in here because he's the president right that makes sense right and so the difference between knowing somebody and knowing of somebody in the terms of our eternality could be the difference of our salvation. And just because we know maybe that there is a God or maybe that you know God kind of does these things or that maybe Jesus is a good person is definitely never enough to bring salvation, and so we're going to be looking into this, and tonight we're going to be looking at four questions to answer that, or sorry, four answers to answer that question of how well do we know God, and in that story, we're in John chapter 3 tonight, right, so go ahead, turn your Bibles there, we're in John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21, and obviously, as you guys heard John chapter 3, you started thinking of John chapter 3, verse 16. It's the most popular uh, verse in all of Christendom and for a good reason because almost the entire gospel sits on top of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's so important to understand the entire portion of that chapter and to understand why that verse was said right now before we get into knowledge of God and before we get into an intimate relationship with God and before we get into any of those points that I want to make we first need to understand that this conversation actually happened between two people between Jesus and Nicodemus right and so to understand that this was an actual conversation this was an actual event this is actually happening and that someone John Listen and saw this and recorded it several years later we need to understand okay what was it that happened to cause this event to take place and so we're actually going to be reading a little bit in chapter 2 because we need to understand that if Jesus comes to a point to say for God so loved the world there must have been something over here that has caused him to say that does that make sense? because we can build our entire life upon a few verses but if we don't understand the whole point in the whole context then we're not going to understand the whole reason of why that verse exists in the first place, right? So John chapter 2 says this, Jesus comes down to Jerusalem for the Passover of the Jews. Now if you guys remember back in Exodus, the Passover was when God told Moses, he said, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and that the spirit of God is going to pass over Israel, right? And by them doing that, they are putting the blood of the lamb over the doorpost in faith that their sin would not be, um, I guess, the agent that would kill them. Right? But that God was going to pass over their sins and was going to essentially bestow grace. It was a beautiful picture of the new covenant of how God passes over us in judgment and he puts his judgment onto Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is here in Jerusalem during the Passover and Passover was one of the few feasts of the Jews that the, every, uh, every man was required to come to Jerusalem right now Jerusalem at this time it's not as big as it is now if you've been to Israel um, and it, but it was, it was a small city in the middle of a few different hills, and it's very tight and very compact, because people from all over the world are coming because of Passover, and this city is swollen. Think back to uh, the end of May at uh, Memorial Day, of when Ocean City was just packed, and you couldn't, pa- you couldn't park anywhere, you know? Think of it like that, but like times ten, because Jerusalem so, is so small, but it's packed. It's full of people, and just like you guys know, because you've been here your whole lives, Every time Memorial Day comes around, all the shops that close down for the seasons, they open back up for business, right? Because people are here, and with more people means more business, right? And more business means the opportunity to succeed. And the people who are in Jerusalem were thinking the same thing. Because what they did is they thought, okay, millions of people are coming from all over the world for Passover to sacrifice animals in atonement for their sins. right? They're coming to worship at the temple. So what are we going to do? We're going to set up shop right there on the temple mount. Because if you've been to the temple mount, it's huge. right? Uh, if, you, if you want, you can Google an image of it. It's ginormous. Definitely enough space to set up shop. And so there's all these people, they're setting up shop of like goats, pigeons, all these animals, you know, and even money traders and everything. And probably for good intentions too, because they're probably thinking that there's some Galileans up north there's some Nazarenes up north who cannot afford a lamb or do not have a healthy lamb to come forward and to sacrifice them. So what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, you know what? We're going to set a business right where you need to be, and we are going to do it for you. All you got to do is pay us a few shekels, you know? So it was probably in good intentions, but what happens is that Jesus comes to the Temple Mount, and he completely destroys all of this business right here. Do you guys remember the story? How he makes a whip, of, he makes a whip, and he starts driving all these people out. Right? And the Bible says in John 2 that the Jews come to him and they say, uh, on what authority do you have to do these things? Right, Because if I'm a Jew and I'm sitting there and I'm selling pigeons and I'm making some money and it's Passover and there's a lot of people passing through and I'm doing this thing because I'm trying to go home and feed my family and this guy comes in and he starts tearing everything up, I'm thinking, okay, either A, this guy has some sort of property right to the temple and he is, has a legal authority to kick all of us out because, you know, it's Passover, we probably shouldn't be here, or B, this guy's a lunatic, is what I'm thinking, right? And so all these Jews come to him and say, what authority do you have? They're not asking anything about God. They're not even thinking about God at this point. They're saying, uh, who has sent you to do this, is essentially what they're saying. They're saying, what kind of government authority do you have to come to the Temple Mount and to remove us? So what they're thinking is, they're thinking Pharisees, they're thinking Sadducees, they're thinking the government of Israel. Jesus says this, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in how many days? Three. Is he talking about the temple or himself? He's talking about himself, right? He's not talking about any sort of government authority. He's talking about the power of life itself. Look, you can't even come to Jerusalem if you can't live. You can't even come and sacrifice if those animals aren't alive. He said, I have the power of life itself. He says, you destroy this temple right here, I will raise it up in three days. What do they respond with? Look, look what they say. It says, uh, how many years? He says, he uh, says, he uh, says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days, right? And so the Jews are still kind of thinking like on, on human earthly terms, but Jesus is talking on godly terms. He's talking in heavenly terms. And he's saying, you destroy me, you kill me because that's what's going to happen. I'm going to be up in the next three days, right? And then so they're like, "Yo." That temple took 46 years to build. How are you going to raise it up in three days, right? And so that conversation ends. And then what we see in verse 23 is that it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs he was doing, um, you know, many people came to faith, right? And so what we see here is that, number one, Jesus is just completely ruining business. Imagine if the entire city of Ocean City during Memorial Day had no business going on. You know how much money the city would lose? We're talking millions of dollars here. Just your local shops, just your boardwalk, just all completely shut down, right? And so that's what these people are thinking, like, this is my business. This is how I feed my family, selling goats at Passover, you know? And so Jesus removes it because that's not what the temple's for. The temple is for people coming to God, right? And so he removes all these business, he removes all this, and not only that, but he's, Jesus is the one getting the business. The, the business of religion is shut down for the week. Jesus is the one that's receiving the business. He's the one that's having people getting saved. He's the one bringing people to the Father. So the Jews, oh, they're pissed. They are pissed. And so what happens is, is chapter 3 begins, essentially. And so now we understand that you have a whole bunch of angry Jews, and you have Jesus that's just getting, you know, Savior. He's being Savior after Savior, soul after soul is just getting saved. He is just racking in the paychecks right here, right? So let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and, and go straight into John chapter 3. I want you to hold on to that little context that we had of what's going on so that we can understand this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And so we're going to look at just the first two verses. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus, right? Uh, he was a ruler of the Jews. Uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's talking about the signs that Jesus just did to receive a whole lot of people into the kingdom of God, right? He's saying, we know you're from God. But there's a few things that we need to point out before we go, for, before we go further. So John records three things. Number one, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, and he was a ruler of the Jews, right? So a Pharisee. Who's a Pharisee? Well, in that day, the government of Israel had like a separate religious government, and it was called the Sanhedrin. Right, The Sanhedrin had a 71 ruling member body Made up of two parties One was the Pharisees And one was the Sadducees And the 71 was made for the great high priest He was kind of like the president Sitting in on the senate meetings you know? And the Sadducees and the Pharisees Were kind of like republicans and democrats They had very different views about religion One people believed in angels The other people didn't One people believed in the resurrection of the dead The other people didn't And so they're just completely on different views Completely split in half And they're just like you know Creating all of the religious law of Israel at the time, so Nicodemus falls into the Pharisee category, right, not only that, but he says he was a ruler of the Jews, so not only is he a Pharisee, not only is he kind of like an elite member, so now we're we're not just talking about somebody who's like a congressional representative of New Jersey, we're talking about like Nancy Pelosi, right, The, the, uh, the House Majority Leader, or we're talking about Mitch McConnell, right, the Senate Majority Leader, right, so we're talking about someone who's not just kind of like there, we're talking about the guy who runs the gig. You know, we're not necessarily talking about the president. We're talking about the VP. We're talking about the guy that kind of has a lot of people who, who, who he oversees. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if this guy had like 10 synagogues to oversee uh, every single Saturday and made sure that everyone was teaching from the book of Isaiah or whatever. You know, he was the guy. So Jesus, he flips over all these tables. He's doing good business. He's saving a whole lot of people. These Jews are pissed. And who do they go to? They go to the ruler of the Jews. Right. That's Nicodemus. And they say, you've got to do something. And so what's the second thing that John says? He says that he came at night, right? This says right there in, uh, let's say, verse 2. It says, this man uh, uh, came to Jesus by night, right? So to come by night implies, uh, what did I say? It, it implies that he is seeking privacy to speak with Jesus. Now we're looking, what does it say? He says, we know, we, as in the Pharisees, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do this unless God is with him. And so he's saying by night in privacy that we know you are from God. Now it's kind of interesting how he decides to come at night. But what that does show is that the Pharisees were a group of people And this is the third thing that John shows us: is that the Pharisees were a group of people that thrived on public attention. They were people that did not care at all about the uh, about serving the people, but they cared about the people putting them back in power. Does that make sense? And so, if you remember, there's this chapter, uh, or there's there's this passage in Luke chapter 20, and what happens is that uh, Jesus is having an is having an uh, an interaction between um, him and the Pharisees, and Jesus says, "I have a question for you, Pharisees: the baptism of John." did that come from God or did that come from man they kind of sit there and they think and they you know Okay, so they huddle up, they start talking, they go, okay, so if we say that the baptism of John is from man, then the public is going to get mad at us because they believe that John was a prophet. But if we say that the baptism of John is from God because the people believe it's from God, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? Because the Pharisees did not have any sort of official stance of belief towards the baptism, towards Jesus, right? And so they look at Jesus and they say, we don't know. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you upon which authority do I do these things, right? And so the Pharisees thrived on public support, because public support means winning elections. You ever have those, you know, politicians, I mean, we all know it, politicians that come up to the stage and say all these things, and then four years later, nothing changes. Doesn't matter if he's Democrat, Republican, or nobody, you know? Like, nothing changes, because it's all about public support. If you win the public, you win the election, right? And so... These uh, Pharisees, they were just that. They were politicians. They thrived on this public support. And so by him saying, we know you are from God, is saying, we as the Pharisees are offering you our official statement of saying, you are from God. Now, what that means is that the Pharisees think that Jesus is just another dude. Because everyone in Israel knew, think about it, if the Republican Party was to come to your house and say, you are an official, like Republican, you know, like... Uh, uh, I guess, seat holder or whatever, or you are an official Republican, like uh, sponsor or something like that. It's like, ooh, like the Prophecy, Wow, that wow, you guys are recognizing me, you know? And so they think that if we, the Pharisees, offer our uh, acceptance to Jesus and say, we know you are from God, maybe what that's going to do is that's going to earn us a little bit more peace and that our guys can go back to the temple and start doing business again and start doing the things that they were doing, right? But Jesus, he's not a normal guy. He doesn't really care about public support. He's not someone to say things that will easily get the attention of mankind. He's things he comes to say the truth. And so, what does Jesus respond with? He doesn't respond with, "Oh, thank you for accepting my, uh, your, thank you for accepting me as a teacher from God." He says this, verse three. He says, uh, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here comes Nicodemus. He's like, look, Jesus, look, we understand you're angry. Uh, we know you're from God. You're from God. You know, trying to, and then so Jesus says, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And so to me, that, these are two separate conversations that are just not, you know, like, it just doesn't seem like they correlate at all. But what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, just because you know who I am, just because you think you know that I'm from God or that I'm a teacher of God, does not even mean you're even close to heaven. What does he say? He says, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, if you have to see it, you have to be, you, know, you don't have to be pretty close. You'd be pretty far away to see it. So he's saying, you're not even close. You can't even see the kingdom of God from where you're at. And then what does Nicodemus say? He says, uh, he says uh, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Nicodemus, he, he, by hearing Jesus say, uh, you have to be born again to be saved, he has one of two options. He can either say, how can I be born again by saying, Uh, how can mankind use his own action to earn salvation, or he has a chance of saying, how can I submit and be born again of the Spirit, right? And so obviously we see that Nicodemus says, how can can I be born again? Do I have to re-enter my mother's womb? And so not only does he think that he has to enter heaven, but he also kind of adds a little bit of sarcasm and a little bit of insult to Jesus by saying, you're an idiot. How can a man be born again? And it completely just misses over Nicodemus' head. Which brings us to our first point. Is that knowing God exists, or that Jesus existed, or that he's a good person, or that he's a prophet, any of that, coming to church, you know, looking nice on Sundays, you know, making coffee like, you know, does not save you. Not even even close. You don't even come close to the kingdom of heaven. You You can't even see the kingdom of heaven is what he's saying. So just simply knowing, just being like, oh yeah, you know, I believe in God, and I believe that that God is Jesus. Like, that's not what saves. Right? It's faith in Jesus. Because by knowing and having faith are two completely different things. See, I know that gravity exists. But I have faith that if I walk off of this, I'm going to go down. And I'm not going to go up. Does that make sense? And so when we walk by faith, that proves where our faith is. See, our knowledge is supposed to be hand in hand, almost married to our faith and if our knowledge is not producing faith then our knowledge is dead our faith is dead remember how James says that your faith without works is dead all that comes from knowledge what do you know how much do you know is what you know is what you know producing faith right so Jesus is saying to him he's like just because you know who I am just because you know where I'm from doesn't even get you close to the kingdom of heaven right and he says you need to be born again Nicodemus says how can I do that right he's saying how can I do that with these hands right here And it's almost like Jesus is saying it's impossible. Verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again, because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So there's a little bit uh, to unpack there. We're just going to start in verse 5. And by Jesus saying, You've got to be born of water and spirit. He's adding compassion to his words. So Nicodemus just responded with sarcasm. How can a man be born again? Well, am I supposed to enter my mother's womb again? Dude, I'm like 60 years old, right? And Jesus says, look, you got to be born of water and spirit, you know? And, and, and I've got to be honest because I'm teaching and, and, it's, and you have the right to understand and to know what people... Uh, take this verse and say. Some people will say by saying born of water and spirit they will say you need to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't work because the, the text here is not talking about baptism right? Some people will say, well, water means that there's this passage in Ezekiel upon which Jesus says that you will be cleansed with water and receive a new heart. And I would kind of be more inclined to believe in a passage like that, that says, you know, you must be cleansed and then receive the spirit. But again, that kind of adds a little bit of work to salvation because the whole point of being saved, the whole point of grace is that you don't have to do anything other than have faith. Because if you have to be cleansed, according to who? According to what? Like, what actions do you have to cut out to be considered cleansed, right? Does that make sense? But salvation and grace is the idea that Jesus on the cross took every single sin, past, present, future. From the moment that you said, Jesus, I believe in you, he looked forward to your life and said, all those sins that you haven't even sinned yet, I'm taking those, and all the sins that you've committed already and you're ashamed of, I'm taking those, and I'm putting them right here on the cross, right? That's called grace. And when Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit, he's looking at Nicodemus, and he's not offering sarcasm. He's offering grace. He's offering love. He's offering compassion. He says, Nicodemus, you can be born of water, which is your first birth, how people say, my water broke. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you can be born of water, and you got to be born of the spirit. He says, that which is the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. So what he's doing here is he's separating the two. So he first said to him, he says, you cannot enter or you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Then he says, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. So now he's even opening the chasm between humanity and, and, uh, and, and God, earth and heaven. It's even further away from us so that it makes it even more impossible for anybody to ever hope, dream, or think that they can save themselves, right? And so... Uh, And so the whole purpose of this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus is to get Nicodemus to understand that this is not a physical interaction that needs to happen. This is a spiritual interaction that needs to happen. That you need to be born of the spirit. Because that's what he says. He says, I say to you that you need to be born uh, of water and spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God if you are not born of water and spirit. So now he's not even saying, he's saying you can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter the kingdom of God. You're not coming close. There's nothing that you have to do. Or, I mean, sorry, there's nothing that you can do. It's locked out. You know, the one requirement that is to enter the kingdom of God is is, it is impossible for you, right? And he says that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. Which means that unless you become a spirit, unless you become a ghost, you're not entering the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, I can't just become a spirit. I'm, I'm a human. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a human. And... And so he says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then so he talks, he says here something about the wind and the Spirit. And this is something that I actually kind of thought was pretty interesting. Because when you read this verse, it says, the wind and the Spirit, i sorry, he says, uh, the wind blows where it wishes. And then later it says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. But in the Greek, those two words are the exact same word. It's the word pneuma. Right, and so pneuma means like spirit, spirits, Holy Spirit. It's typically the word that's associated with the spirit, right? And it's not the word that's typically associated with wind, you know. And so it's interesting because when you read it differently, this is what it sounds like. It says, uh, "It says the spirit blows where he wishes, and you hear his sound, but you do not know where he comes from or where he goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit." and so now the point that's being uh, illustrated here and that's being created and is being given to Nicodemus with grace and with compassion is this Nicodemus you're not born of the spirit you don't recognize the spirit you hear him he's flying around you and he's touching the lives of people who are all around you but you don't know from who he comes from and you don't know where he's going and he's saying and he's taking uh, Nicodemus' weaknesses and he's putting it right in front of his face And here's the thing about Jesus, he's not afraid to do that. I'll tell you what, I did not come to a point of legit salvation in my Lord until Jesus took all my stink, wrapped it up, put a nice little bow on it, and said, how does that smell? That's you. And he's not afraid to do that. Because what happens is that when you become aware of your sin, is when you repent. It's not because you read or you become more intellectual, but it's because if you realize how damning your sin is and how heavy it is, and how it's like, this is so inconvenient, I don't want this anymore. And Jesus says, Hey, nice to meet you. My name's Jesus. Wow, isn't that something? You know? And so the word here, wind and spirit, both being the word spirit, shows us that Jesus is saying, You don't even know, man. And so what happens is that Nicodemus he completely removes his uh, lifestyle of being this intellectual uh, Pharisee, this teacher, this ruler, and he comes to a point of saying this in verse nine. He says, "How can these things be?" Wow! Doesn't the conversation just like come up to you now? Doesn't that just kind of pop at you? He's saying, "How is this possible?" I'm a ruler of the Jews, Jesus. I, I. i have memorized the torah and all the prophets and i don't see anywhere where it says it means be born of the spirit i think that's so just crazy you know it's just like jesus's compassion and his love is just like so bizarre but when he speaks to you he speaks to you because he's serious he doesn't speak to you like he's your boyfriend he's just like i just i just really like you and you know it's really okay if you do whatever you want i just love you a lot you know he's not like that He's serious, and he says, I am serious about saving your life today, right? And so the second point is this, that knowing God also involves knowing his spirit and submitting to his spirit, right? This is what it says. It says that uh, the wind blows or the spirit blows where it wishes, right? And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's coming. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. If you are born of the spirit, which I'm going to say is all of us in this room. If you're born of the spirit, and you know the spirit, and you're submitted to the spirit, you're going to see your life as wind it just comes and it goes and it comes up and it goes and I'm going to be honest I couldn't think of any other better example than honestly than, than Tony and his family you know they uh, Tony and Trish met in Millville right and they got married there and then after having Abby they got called to York, planted a church, had friends, family, and everything, and after that they came back to South Jersey, now they're planning they're doing this church right here, right? That's wind right there. You know? That's that's being so submitted, and that's not even having your feet rooted into planet earth because you realize that this is not your home, but that your home is heaven, and that you're not doing this for, for, for yourself. You're not doing this to be retired and to have a big house in Ocean City. You're doing this for the kingdom of God, right? And so it says in James, it says that you should not be thinking, we're gonna come into such and such a city, we're gonna buy such and such a product, we're gonna do all these things, but rather your mindset should be, if the Lord wills, I'm gonna do these things. And so by being submitted to the Holy Spirit, right, you are like wind, and you have your bags ready because here, my Lord, send me. How crazy is that, right? So he says, How can these things be? And this is where Jesus gets like into it. And he says, Here's the gospel. He says, He says, uh, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know or understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how on earth are you going to believe heavenly things? I added the on earth, sorry. Uh, He says, If uh, if I have told you earthly things, how do you not, and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is what he's doing. He's saying, he's saying, how is it that you are in this huge position, right? This is what he's doing. He's pointing at Nicodemus' his pride, his identity, everything that Nicodemus is is. You know Everything that he is, he's saying right here, he's saying, how are you, this ruler, this, this master, this you know, person that you know, oversees all these things, and yet you don't even know these things, right? Jesus does that to us all the time. He says, look, this is what you're doing wrong. But he never leaves us at that point. Jesus will never, ever leave you at a point of feeling that you are only wrong, that you're doing wrong. What he will do is he will convict you and you will say, this is wrong. He's saying, how are you a ruler and you don't know these things? This is elementary Nicodemus, but he doesn't leave him there. Ever does he leave him there. And people think that Jesus does. They think, you know, God has it out against me. No, he doesn't. That's only the first step is that Jesus shows you what's wrong and then he wants to correct that to show you what's right, right? And so he says, how, you know, he says, how can these things be? He says, how can you not know these things, right? And then he says this, he says, we, I say to you, Uh, In verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is what's going on. Uh, Jesus is telling uh, Nicodemus his testimony. Things like this. Yeah, we we were in uh, Passover, you know, in Jerusalem. And I did all these things. And I fed the 5,000. And I healed this person's uh, eyeball, you know. And I did all these crazy things. and And the Jews go, oh, he has a demon you know and he's saying no like this is reality man this is just right here on earth you saw me do this thing you know and it's crazy if you, if you continue reading through John you see what happens is that Jesus he feeds the 5,000 and then the same 5,000 people come to Jesus and say you need to give us a sign for us to believe it's like dude didn't I just feed you like I had pe- I had pieces of bread and a fish and I fed 5,000 people and you don't believe really that's just crazy to me, man, you know? But um, I'm reading John through my, in my devotions right now. It's, it's been a trip, I'll tell you what, man. But so, so anyways, so, so Jesus is having this conversation. He's saying, if I'm telling you all these things, what we're doing, my testimony, my witness, right, my ministry, and you're not believing what I'm doing, how on earth are you going to believe the Holy Spirit, Right? But, he's, he, but Jesus wants to get us to believe. Jesus wants to get us to a point where we believe and we see and we submit to the Holy Spirit. And this is what he does. He says, no one has ascended into heaven but him who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what he's doing is he's saying, uh, your religion that you got going on doesn't get you even close to the kingdom of God. I'm from the kingdom of God. I'm going to show you what you need. And he says this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. This is, okay, this is by far the most exciting thing of this passage for me, because by Jesus saying, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent... Now he's pointing back to this uh, passage in Numbers chapter 21, verse 9. If you want to take note, maybe read it later. And what happens is that uh, Israel keeps on complaining and doing all this idolatrous stuff against God. And they're not even in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the land of Israel yet. And what God does is he sends all these venomous snakes up against Israel and says, I'm done with you guys, you know. Um, and, and he wasn't, you know. Uh, spoiler, he's not ever. But what happens is that Moses prays and he says, Lord, you know, have grace, essentially. And so what God does is he says, okay get some bronze, you're going to make a rod, and you're going to make a serpent. And so we kind of think of like that paramedic sign. Uh, I guess like up until like America was created, it was a rod stabbing a serpent, and it kind of looked like a cross, which is kind of cool. Um, but we, we kind of designed the paramedic sign, so I don't know. But anyways, so... God says build a bronze serpent and what you're going to do is you're going to stick it up and people are going to look at it and when they look at it they're going to be saved right? and it's crazy is that even in that passage people didn't look at it that's just insane to me but, so what happens is that bronze all over the Old Testament is a material symbolized for judgment you never see bronze used as like a, uh, you know, a worship instrument. You only see bronze as like the bronze altar, right? Which is where they would put their sacrifices, you know, to, to you know, for, for judgment, to put their sins, right? And and God would kind of have like this uh, like this exchange where like the exchange of a cow for the exchange of your sin. And, you know, you were good for a little bit of time, you know? And so bronze was an element of judgment, right? So you were, you know, you were using bronze to symbolize judgment and serpents were the, was a symbol of wickedness it was a symbol of sin right think about it, satan right and so by god taking a bronze serpent he's saying sin being judged and so by taking this bronze serpent and lifting it up and saying you got to look at it you got to look at your son you got <laughs> you got to look at your sin being judged and what happens afterwards we know the story they get saved so we see that god's character is a judgment of sin for the life of mankind isn't that beautiful? And Jesus is pointing to this passage. He's saying, "Just as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted, so that you may have eternal life." Because that was for a moment, but Jesus being lifted up is for eternity. And because what he's saying is, he's saying these scriptures that you've memorized, the only purpose is to I, is to uh, to praise and to show Jesus, right? And so, and then he goes into this whole point of why it all matters, right? And it says this, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to read the next few verses just so that we can kind of really understand both of of, of these sections. So, um... Verses 16 to 21 is kind of showing us the method and the motive of what God is doing and what the purpose is for. It's for love and for the redemption of mankind. You know, God lifted up that serpent because he loves Israel. God lifted up his own son because he loves the entire world, right? And that the the saving blood of Christ has the ability to save every single human being anywhere, right? That's an amen right there. That's just true, you know? And so... That brings us to our third point that says truly knowing God knows that every action he has ever made has ever has always been out of love on our behalf, right? Now how many of us, let's just be honest, think that sometimes no matter where we are in life, we kind of think that God has it out for us. I have said that a few times and it's frustrating to admit. But a true knowledge, a true intimate knowledge of God says, you know, I'm thinking of Job of when he says, um, What did he say? He says, like, uh, you know, I have come into this world. um, Like, from dust I came, to dust I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How crazy is that? That's poetic right there. You know? And so that right there, that's a true knowledge of God. That's saying everything God does is out of love, right? And so the second part is judgment. It's condemnation. It's like what happens when you don't accept this knowledge? It says in verse 19 this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So there's so much there, but I think I just kind of want to summarize it in a few compact little um, ideas here. You know, he says um, in verse 17, God did not send his son to condemn the world, right? And then he says that. He says, uh, this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works are evil. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed, right? And so he's saying, he's like... Jesus' ministry is not to come and to say, I'm sending you to hell, I'm sending you to hell, I'm sending you to hell, you know. And that, that phrase, sending to hell, being sent to hell, that's not a theologically correct phrase. God doesn't send anybody to hell, right? But he says this, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So what does that mean? That means that the gavel from the judge passes from God to Jesus. Jesus declares all who believe in him to be innocent then he takes the gavel and he passes it to you and he says how are you going to declare yourself right now that's something that we've all already said I declare myself innocent because of my faith in Christ right but the problem is that I don't think we share that enough with the people who were around you know and I think that's just a point that I really want to end on. Is, is that our fourth point is that those who know God pursue to remain in the light, because He says that those who love the light stay in the light. You know, I came to a point where I did my sin in secret, you know, because I didn't want my stuff to be exposed. But after having Jesus saying, "How do you like this?" I was like, "I don't like it." And then I came into the light, and then I realized that the light exposing it's something that I actually enjoy because what the light exposes it exposes I need a savior it exposes that I'm weak it exposes all these um, insecurities about me and it, all these cracks you know and I'm just thinking about how Jesus considers himself the claymaker, you know and how he molds and he builds and he does all these things for us you know and that those who know God they say I don't want to live in secret no more you know I remember I was hearing on the radio this morning and said why would you go to work from a job that you quit right I quit Wawa. I haven't been there since, you know? (laughs) Since I'm gone, man. You know? But it's like, why would we, right? Why would we quit a job and go back? Why would we quit our sin, our drugs, our pornography, our our lust, you know, our lying, our thieving, all these things whatever whatever hits your heart, that. Why would we quit that and then go back to it the next day? Because true knowledge of God says, I know what God did for me. I know what He's doing for me, right? You know, um, he says. Uh, he says, uh, "I'm going to prepare a place for you." Right? That's all of us. He says, "I know what I know what you're doing for me," and so I don't. I don't want to do things in the dark anymore. For what reason? God knows everything, but I'm going to live in the light. Amen. Let's pray.